one of the sentences that really hit home to me from my own message this week was, the church should be the humblest and the happiest fellowship on the face of the earth. And I hope that what I say this morning will make that happen, or at least bring us a step closer to that ideal this morning. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed. And I, I assume that applies to us as well. We ought not to be ignorant about spiritual gifts. So this final message in this four-part series on the Holy Spirit deals with that subject. Now, instead of spreading myself over the whole three chapters of 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, which is the major section on spiritual gifts in the New Testament, I've decided instead to focus on three smaller texts that we can go into in a bit more detail and save that larger one for later, perhaps next fall, We'll get into a series more particularly on the individual spiritual gifts. Now, if you were reading through the New Testament from first to last, the first place that you would find the term spiritual gifts is Romans chapter 1, verse 11. And I would like you to turn to Romans 1 with me, if you would. Romans chapter 1, verses 11 and 12 is what we'll look at first. Paul writes to the church at Rome, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Now, the translation in the Revised Standard Version that I just read, impart to you some spiritual gift, might be misleading if you take it to mean that he's going there to help them get a gift. That sounds like what it means, impart to you a spiritual gift. But in fact, as other translations would suggest, it means he's going there to use one of his spiritual gifts to strengthen them. That's the meaning. Now, the first thing, therefore, that we can learn right off the top from this text is that spiritual gifts are given to us that we may strengthen other people. I think that's pretty clear from that text. Now, this doesn't mean, as we'll see in just a minute, that we don't get any great benefit from the fact that God gives us a spiritual gift. We do indeed. But it does suggest that gifts are given to be given, not to be hoarded. They will rot if they're hoarded. I desire to share with you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Now, what does that mean, to strengthen you? It doesn't mean bodily strength, obviously. I think it means to strengthen your faith. Now, I'll show you why. There's a place where Paul sent Timothy to do just what he wanted to do, to the Romans. In 1 Thessalonians 3, 2, Paul says, Now we sent Timothy, our brother and servant in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen you, 
And then he adds the phrase, in your faith, to exhort you that no one be moved by these afflictions. So I assume that since these two missions are similar, they use the very same word. One adds the word in your faith that that's implied in the other. Namely, spiritual gifts are given that we might strengthen people in their faith. We have spiritual gifts to make other people less easily toppled by their afflictions. Faith is threatened by afflictions. And spiritual gifts are given that we might stabilize each other, that we not be so easily toppled. So, if there is anybody in your circumference of influence, neighbor, work, church, recreation, and you see that something has come into their lives that might threaten their faith, jeopardize their strength in the Lord, you should take heed whether or not you might have a gift peculiarly suited to strengthen their faith. That's what we ought to be waking up to as a result of this word in Romans 1. Now, I think in addition from this text, it would be fair to say already that you shouldn't bend your mind too much in trying to label your gift. Give it a name. Don't worry whether you can point to your gift and say, well, now that's prophecy, teaching, wisdom, knowledge, miracles, mercy, administration, helps, giving aid, generosity, etc., etc. It doesn't matter, ultimately, whether you can name your gift. Here's the way I think we should think about spiritual gifts. We should say to ourselves, the reason God gives spiritual gifts is to enable us to strengthen other people's faith. So we look around. Where is there anybody whose faith I might strengthen? There's about 550 people here you could get to work on, or at least a few right nearby. Then you should say to yourself, what might I do this morning or this afternoon or tomorrow at work that will strengthen somebody's faith and then you do it and the Holy Spirit will help you find those ways and you know what that is that's the discovery of your spiritual gift if you find a measure of success in helping somebody's faith so if you warn somebody hey the way you're going you're gonna you're gonna make shipwreck out of your faith this thing you're doing is gonna get you into trouble they wake up they turn around they go the other way you got the gift of Warning. Suppose you walk with her down the road and she is wiped out emotionally. And you say, I know what you mean. I know what you've been through. You lift part of that load onto yourself. And she feels a, a waft of hope blowing. You got the gift of empathy. Or suppose some new neighbor moves into your neighborhood and they're all alone and you see that and they're discouraged and don't know anybody you have them in and give them a meal and they they go away from your home feeling loved and strengthened maybe you've got the gift of hospitality 
And the list is endless. And I don't care about the names. I care very much about whether we are building up people's faith. That's the thing to get hung up on. The thing to get hung up on is doing what you can do to strengthen the faith of other people. Now, I really believe that the discovery of our spiritual gifts is not a basic problem, not a basic problem. It is a problem. It's not the basic problem. More basic than the discovery of what your spiritual gift is, is the problem of desiring to strengthen other people's faith. The problem is becoming the kind of person who wants once desires to be a strengthener instead of a terror downer. The path of least resistance for human beings seems to be grumbling, grousing, criticism, gossip. If we just let everything go, we just seem to gravitate that way, don't we? It's so much easier to say negative things about people than to say positive things and encourage them. We could paraphrase Jesus, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to grousing. And many there be that find it. But the way is is narrow and the gate is narrow and strewn with obstacles is this way that leads to encouragement and strengthening of other people. So the basic problem is becoming the kind of person who wakes up in the morning and thanks God for life and for salvation and then says, Lord, oh, how I want to strengthen people's faith today at work. Lord, let me come to the end of this day and be able to look back and say, somebody has more confidence in your promises today because I crossed their path. Somebody is more happy in your grace because I crossed their path. That's the main problem. Waking up and being that kind of person. And the reason I say that's the basic problem and not the discovery of spiritual gifts is because if there were 550 people in this church waking up and saying that and praying that and meaning that, the Holy Spirit would not leave you frustrated in finding ways to do that. He will not let a person whose heart is earnestly desirous of building other people up go without building them up. He will help you find those ways and the finding of those ways will be the discovering of your gifts. It doesn't matter whether you can find a name for it or not. So let's apply ourselves to becoming the kind of people who more and more long to build up each other's faith, to make each other happier in the Lord, to make each other more confident in his promises. Now, next verse, really interesting insights that come from comparing these two verses. Verse 12, Paul restates verse 11 in different words. That's what you do when you start a sentence with that is. You're restating what you just said. I want to strengthen you by my spiritual gift. That is, I want us to mutually encourage or be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Now, Paul does two things here. 
This is really interesting. The first thing he does is the old, it's my pleasure tactic. You remember that sermon back in the fall that I preached called, it's my pleasure, Christian hedonism and humility. Paul is doing that right here. Notice, when we say, uh, oh, it's my pleasure, after we do a, a benefit for somebody, a favor, what we're doing is trying to be humble. We're saying, uh, well, don't get too worked up about my self-sacrifice because I just did what I wanted to do. So you, you, you cut off too much praise. You try to humble yourself after having done a good deed. Now, that's what Paul is doing here, I think. Paul rereads verse 11. He says, hmm, I sure don't want to give the impression that I'm coming on strong there as the great benefactor who's going to do them all this good and, uh, and get no benefit. See? So he backs off and he restates his goal to say it's going to be two-way street in Rome. I'm going to get encouraged and you're going to get encouraged. It's my pleasure. Don't give me too much praise. I'm just doing what I like to do when I go around preaching and get encouraged by other people's faith as well as encouraging them. That's the first thing he does in this text. Now, the second thing he does is to show that the way he's going to strengthen their faith by using his spiritual gift is by encouraging them with his faith. Now, notice the parallel between the two verses. In verse 11, he aims to strengthen them. In verse 12, he aims to encourage them. So those two words are parallel. In verse 11, he aims to strengthen them by his spiritual gift. In verse 12, he aims to encourage them by his faith. Now, I think you can draw the conclusion, therefore, this definition of spiritual gifts. A spiritual gift is an expression of faith that aims to strengthen faith. Wouldn't that be a fair Definition, having put those two verses together and seeing that verse 12 is an explanation of verse 11. A spiritual gift is activated by faith and aims to produce more faith in another person. Or another way to put it would be this. A spiritual gift is an ability given by the Holy Spirit to express our faith effectively for the upbuilding of another's faith. That's what a spiritual gift is, I think, from these two verses. Now, that to me is very helpful because it helps me distinguish and keep separate natural abilities and spiritual gifts. They aren't the same. Many, many unbelievers have great abilities. Administration, teaching, for example, to name a couple. And these are given by God. Everybody has what he has from God, whether they acknowledge it or not. But they're not spiritual gifts in the New Testament sense, are they? Why? Because they do not come from faith. They're not expressions of faith. And they're not aiming to strengthen faith. Our faith is the channel through which the Holy Spirit flows on his way to building up another person's faith. And therefore, for any ability that we have to be a channel for the Spirit and therefore spiritual, it has to flow from faith in him and aim towards faith in another person. So, 
no matter what abilities we have, if we're not relying on God, that is having faith, and we're not aiming to help others rely on God, produce faith, our ability is not spiritual. It's not a spiritual gift because the Holy Spirit is not flowing through it from faith to faith. Now, that has tremendous implications for a church in the selection of its staff, the choice of its officers, and its board members. The implication is this. It means that we will never simply say who has the ability to efficiently do this job. Never. That's a wholly inadequate criterion for determining a person's suitability for staff or for office in the church. We will go on and ask, does this person use his skill or her ability to express their lively and hearty dependence on the Lord? And we will ask, does the exercise of that skill aim always to be helping other people believe more? Or does the way they go about doing their work always manage to put people down or make people feel unbelieving rather than believing? A church where the Holy Spirit is alive and powerful will always be sensitive to the difference between natural abilities and spiritual gifts. Now, let's leave Romans 1 behind and jump over 12 chapters to Romans 12, 3 to 8 for additional insight into what spiritual gifts are. Here Paul deals with spiritual gifts in a more detailed way than he did in chapter 1. Let's read part of this, beginning at Romans 12, verse 3. By the grace given to me, I bid every one of you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith which God has assigned him. And dropping down to verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, he who teaches in his teaching, he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who contributes in liberality, he who gives aid with zeal, and he who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. I'm just going to mention two things here. This is a rich text. We could spend hours on the implications of this text, but only two observations. First, I think this text confirms the observation made earlier that we ought not get too lathered up about naming our gift or even being able to identify it with a word or with a category. Spiritual gifts are not a limited and defined group of activities spelled out in the New Testament. Rather, as we saw, spiritual gifts are any ability given by the Spirit that will build up another person's faith. Notice the last four gifts here to illustrate this in verse 8. Exhorting or comforting or encouraging, you could translate it. Contributing or sharing. Giving aid or perhaps some of your translations have presiding. 
there's a difficulty to know which which translation is appropriate. And then finally, acts of mercy. Now, the remarkable thing about those gifts, with the possible exception of presiding, is that all believers are commanded to exhort each other, give and be merciful, right? Therefore, what a spiritual gift must be is the enablement by the Holy Spirit for a person to be able to do those things in an especially hearty manner, in an especially effective way, with a higher degree of frequency. In other words, it seems to be a matter of degree, not quality, since every Christian is commanded, be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. So how can one person be said to have the gift of mercy? Well, the Holy Spirit enables some to do that sort of thing better. But that shows they're not in a class by themselves. We shouldn't get too hung up about trying, therefore, to find them in a class or name them. Any virtue at all that the believer has, which he is enabled to perform by the Spirit and has some success in building others' faith up, that's his gift. And it may be many things. Now, the second thing I want to observe from this text is this. Both the gift and the faith to perform it are gifts and given in various measure by the Lord, as is evident in verses 3 and 6. Now, Paul teaches this truth, I think, to help us think soberly about ourselves. That is, not to think too highly. The gifted are always in danger of pride. That was a terrible problem at Corinth and perhaps also at Rome, which may be why Paul said what he said here. So Paul uncovers a profound truth. Theology is always for the sake of ethics in the Bible. Truth is for the sake of life. He wants to avoid people thinking too highly of themselves. So he uncovers an amazing truth for us to look at briefly. Namely, that he's the one who gives gifts graciously and he's the one who parcels out faith to exercise those gifts and therefore all boasting and all self-reliance and all pride is blown away. Any distinction that sets you off from another person because of an ability you have is owing wholly to grace, verse 6 says. He has given gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, which means they are not earned, they are not deserved, and they cannot be boasted in. And therefore, this theological revelation is a great help to life. But someone might say, okay, um, granted, I didn't have anything to do with the getting of my gift, but... I surely can boast in the zeal with which I have used it. That's like the person who says, I can't boast that I was born in America. I didn't have anything to do with my birth. But I sure can be proud that I have used my freedom to be productive and to get rich. Both those statements are dead wrong. 
Moses said to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 8:17, "Beware, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for he it is who gives the power to get wealth." In other words, doesn't matter how much you put out. God through his grace has given that ability and I think we should add here lest we be negligent with that wealth and we're all wealthy comes an accountability from that same God to use it for the less advantaged instead of padding our lives with luxury now in a similar way Paul says concerning spiritual gifts in verse 3 don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think but think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith which god has assigned him so not only the gift but the faith to use it is measured out given in various measure by god now god has revealed this truth to us not to lessen our hunger for full faith but to remove every possible ground of boasting and to cause us to look to him for everything it says in 1 Corinthians 1 that God does everything so that no human being might boast before him let him who boasts boast in the lord wouldn't you agree that few things keep our pride quelled and are thinking about ourselves sober and humble like the awareness that the spirit of god is absolutely sovereign and gives gifts and the faith to exercise those gifts as he sees fit and in the proportion that he sees fit if that's true no one in any measure can boast in the slightest degree the church should be the humblest and the happiest people on the face of the earth. I just love that doctrine because I love humble people. And now finally, turn to 1 Peter 4 verses 10 and 11. 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 10 and 11. I want to make four brief observations from these two verses and they are rich. They're right in the top four or five of my favorite texts in all the Bible, I think. Let's read them. As each has received a gift, employ it for one another, or more literally, serve it up to one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who utters oracles of God, whoever renders service as one who renders it by the strength which God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. First observation, the word each. Zero in on the word each. Each has received a gift. Gifts are not for the few, not for the staff, not for the officers. For every person in this room who names the name of Christ, you have at least one gift. 
That's the first point. And it is the supreme joy of life to discover what that gift is and to pour yourself out for other people through that channel. The reason so many people are frustrated and unhappy is because we're trying to lead our lives basically for ourselves and have not applied ourselves in the least to discover how we can strengthen the faith of other people. It is blessed to give. And if you want happiness and joy and fulfillment, search as for hidden treasure for ways to strengthen other people's faith. That is, discover your gift. And you'll find them because the Holy Spirit will not leave his people frustrated who want to pour themselves out for others. Second observation. The picture we have in verse 10, hinted at in a couple of the phrases, is of a household with stewards. Uh, let me point out the five elements of this household that are either implied or, or explicit here. You've got a house with variously talented stewards who have received funds from the owner and are to administer those funds for the good of his household. That's the picture of that day. Stewards were like that. So now here's the, the analogy to the church. The, the household is the church. You are all the stewards. We're all stewards of God's varied grace. Uh, the talents that we have are the varied gifts, the currency, the funds that the owner has given us to disperse are grace and the exercise or the administration of those funds is the exercise of our gifts. Now, to me, the most striking thing in this analogy is the comparison between the funds given to the stewards to disperse and grace. Grace is the currency in the household of God. Have you ever thought about it like that? Grace is the currency in the household of God. We are called to be stewards of grace. Now, we've got a board of stewards in the Minnesota Baptist Conference and their responsibility, a heavy one, is to receive and disperse and keep oversight of all these funds that are being funneled in there. They're to disperse them for the good of the conference, for the good of God's people. And that's the way we should view our stewardship of God's varied grace. We have received grace from God, and it's our duty to be dispersers of that grace horizontally to our brothers and sisters in the faith and to those outside. And the vehicle by which we receive the grace and disperse it are what? Spiritual gifts, right? You're just too timid. So now here's another definition of spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are any ability that you have by which you receive grace and disperse grace to others. That's what a spiritual gift is. And that fits beautifully, doesn't it, with our first definition, which said that a spiritual gift is any ability you have which can express faith and strengthen faith. And the reason they fit together is because what the house owner, God, wants from all his stewards is faith. But the only currency that can purchase faith is grace or to change the image Faith feeds on grace. So it makes perfectly good sense that a spiritual gift is both an expression of faith because we have received grace 
and are trusting in the Lord for it and is trying to produce more faith by offering up or dispersing grace. We can only build people up if we disperse grace to them. Hebrews 13, 9 says the heart is strengthened, not by foods, but by grace. So what you want to say and do is disperse grace. So what should be happening at Bethlehem Baptist Church is that all God's stewards, that's everybody in this room who is a believer, should be waking up to more and more of the wealth of grace that we have in Jesus Christ and all the promises that are yes in him and becoming more and more eager to find ways of creatively dispersing that grace to each other and to those outside. And if we're doing that, that will be the discovering of our spiritual gifts. Oh, that there might be a lot of wheeling and dealing in the currency of grace at Bethlehem Baptist Church. Third observation. Grace can be dispersed either through gifts of word or gifts of deed in verse 11. Whoever speaks, let him do it as one who utters oracles of God. Now, that means, I think, that if you have a gift that is word oriented, involves speaking, and there's lots of them, don't rely on your own insight, but rather appeal to God to grant you his words to speak so that they will be his words. The only way that you can bring faith out of another person is with the word of God. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. Now, it may not be a word of scripture. It may simply be a perfectly chosen word prompted by and empowered by the Holy Spirit for the situation. In any case, it will produce faith if it's a word prompted by, guided by God. Our aim is to strengthen faith. And therefore, we don't want to attract attention to ourselves, but to him because he's the infinitely trustworthy one. Then secondly, you can minister or disperse grace by deeds of service. If the gifts you have are of serving, it says whoever renders service, let him do it as one who renders it by the strength which God supplies. So if your gift involves practical deeds of kindness, you're not a word person, but a deed person by God's grace, then don't do it in your own strength. That's what he's saying here. For then your gift won't be spiritual. You will simply fall back into natural abilities. It must come from faith in reliance on grace if it's going to be a spiritual gift. So then grace can be dispersed either through gifts of word or gifts of deed. If we speak with words and act with strength, which comes from God and not ourselves. One final point from the text, and this is the final one that I have to make this morning. And you can see what it is in the latter part of the verse. Namely, the reason God gives gifts to his people is that in everything, God might be glorified through Jesus Christ. This means that God's aim in blessing us with these gifts that build each other up is that his glory might be displayed among us. He wants the world and us to marvel at how fantastic 
he is. I simply am amazed and overwhelmed sometimes when I think about how all-encompassing the reality of God is. From Him and through Him and to Him are all things. And I believe it is the most thrilling, the most exciting, the most satisfying, the most meaningful thing in the world for a human being to find his little niche in the unfolding of the glory of God. Our gift may look small. I think they all look small. You view them against the greatness of God. But small as they are, as a part of the unfolding and the revelation of the infinite glory of God, they take on stupendous proportions 